The reading this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. But but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let me pray for Jeff as he comes to bring the message this morning. Father God, may the words of Jeff's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you, David, for that uh, prayer and uh I find this uh, absolutely intriguing uh, little passage. Uh, Mark's gospel is, is probably my favourite gospel, but uh, there's a lot happening here, and I want to just move away from thinking that we've got this one down, Pat. It's uh, you know a good bash at the rich, and you know who doesn't like to do that? Uh, so let's <laughs> let's get stuck into them. Um, but uh, it's it's really a lot more happening here than that. Uh, this this little passage. Uh, quite deliberately. This happens in the second half of Mark's Gospel. Jesus has just crossed the Jordan up north and uh, he's heading to Jerusalem. Uh, he has his mind set on the cross. His disciples are with him, but their minds are elsewhere. They're certainly not on the cross, as we'll see in this passage and the next, as you follow through Mark's Gospel. It's almost like uh, the disciples, though they've confessed him as Lord in chapter 8, are are uh, far from being on the same page. And we'll see why. 
So in the middle of this, they're, they're heading south from Galilee, they've into Jordan, Judea, and uh, the southern part of the, the country. And, and then this fellow comes up to them, he just bowls up and interrupts this entourage. Jesus has been teaching, and there's always a small crowd gathered. But he has a, a note of urgency about him. And, and he, he flatters Jesus as he comes up and says, good teacher. He actually gets down on a knee, beseeches him. Uh, and he asks this incredible question. He begins with flattery, the charm offensive. Uh, he hopes to open up uh, Jesus this way. But we've got to look beneath the surface this morning at what is ticking in this guy's mind. Luke uh, tells us that he's actually a ruler. That is, uh, this fellow we know, you've heard the story, he's wealthy, but his wealth is not just acquired wealth, it's ascribed wealth. He's been born into it. He's got a sense of entitlement that goes back. It's part of his DNA. And this fellow, of all people, comes to Rabbi Jesus from the back blocks of Galilee and says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think we've got to hear in this little phrase uh, an inflection on the word I. It's not what must anyone do to be saved. It's what I must do to be saved. And Jesus pushes back against this light use of flattery and uh, says, um, well, there's only one who is good and that's God alone. Are you aware of what you're saying when you throw the adjective good around? And... The, the, the fellow is not taken aback by that and he is expecting Jesus to come out with some formula for spirituality that a sophisticated man like him can appreciate. And Jesus says, well, you know the commands of God and he gives the commandments, the second half of the Ten Commandments, the social ones to do with adultery and family and, and uh, false witness and fraud and this guy uh, brushes it aside in verse 20. He says, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. I mean, that's, that's Sunday school stuff. I want something more postgraduate. You know, that's why I've come to you. Uh, he regards himself well as one of the spiritually elite. He, he feels really that, um, that he's pretty close to perfect. He's done pretty well. He, uh, he certainly is not a hypocrite. He's, he's devout. But there's something within his mind that disturbs him. And I think, in fact, seeing Jesus and hearing his reputation and knowing a little bit about Jesus, the very person of Jesus has brought something to the surface. And he knows that between the layers of his personality, there's some grit. It doesn't quite settle. He's not a settled man. He's a layered individual. And that's what's driven him to come to Jesus in this time. And, uh, but when Jesus throws out Talmud 101 and says, you know, just do the commandments, he thinks, well, any fool knows that. He says this, doesn't understand that knowing is not the same thing as comprehension and that he hasn't meditated deeply upon these things. And at that point, we read those wonderful words that Jesus literally set his eyes upon him, fixes his gaze, if you like, eyeballs him. And they see each other front on. And the motive of Jesus in what he is about to say, we're told, is that he loves this guy. 
This is not Jesus cancelling the whole culture. Jesus is not dissing the class here because he happens to come from the wrong side of history. Jesus loves this guy and is concerned for his disturbance. And Jesus says, one thing you do lack. At this point, I think he would have been all ears. I knew I was close. (laughs) What's the one thing? And then I'll do it. Matthew says, you know, there's only, if you want to be perfect, uh, you know, and that's got him interesting. He, he is all ears. And Jesus says, well, basically there's three things you've got to do. And he's, where's a biro? <laughs> I'll get this down. And first thing, go and sell all you have. And I think he would have been, all right, that's interesting economic advice. We're, we're going Bitcoin, right? I don't know what yeah. um, Secondly, give it all to the poor. Uh, and that wouldn't have been difficult to find because the very social structure, particularly of the north of Palestine at this time, was 80% of the population would have been subsistence, depending on each day's work. Jesus is asking for something that's much more than virtue signalling. This guy is going to have to actually do something with his wealth, with the power that he actually has, to help people, real people. He's got to actually find them and give up his, uh, his wealth. And then, number three, come and follow me. And in the middle of that, there is a promise given. It's a contract. It's good for it. In the middle is that you will have treasure in heaven. Your stocks will be rising in the next world by doing that. This is not just a simple set of commands. It is an incredible test of faith. In fact, this is the same test of faith Jesus gives us, that we either live in the light of the world to come or we think that this is the best of possible worlds and we've got to have it all now. Until we resolve that one, we cannot be free to follow Jesus. It's a really simple question. Do you believe it or not? That there are treasures waiting in heaven. That separates the sheep from the goats, the cultural Christian from the disciple, if you like. In this passage, I want to point out four core truths about how God works in our lives, like he's trying to work in this guy's life, so that we might have a full Christian experience, the experience we're meant to have. Well, Jesus has laid out the terms of the, tr- the contract, go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me, you're going to have treasures in the next life. And uh, <clears throat> we see then the response of the man in verse 22. This is just a bridge too far. His whole countenance falls. He experiences a shock of depression. From one moment of expecting he's about to be given a distinction grade, he's then handed out a fail, and it's a shock that hits him hard. Why does it hit him so hard? Because this fellow lives his life through a cultural lens. That is, all that has ever been drummed into him from his folks, from his village, from his wherever he lived, is that he is special. A ruler who has wealth of both kinds, ascribed and acquired, 
experiences deference from day to day when I was a pastor in the country. I can still remember at times when a, an auction would be held, a family would split up, Dad had not resolved what the estate would do, which son would get it every time it would go to auction. And I was amazed at standing in auctions with friends who were farmers when one of the wealthy landed gentry who went way back, the station owners, people who didn't even live in the territory but then had their, their farms run by managers, would walk in and all the farmers would take off their hats and say, Good day, Mr. Mr. Sullivan. Like schoolboys in shorts. I was amazed at that sort of thing. It's a very rich thing, and it's that sort of culture that you are living in in this this community. And uh, uh, this this fellow is is uh, used to having a social mirror that wherever he goes, every day of the week, he gets deference, he gets credit points. It's fed back to him. He cannot help but think of himself as the paragon of virtue because that's all the information, that's all the radiation that he is getting every minute of the day. And yet Jesus somehow, in one sentence, in one command, has thrown a pebble at that social mirror and it's shattered. And now he sees through it and he sees himself for what he really is. He's mean-spirited. He lacks any empathy. And he cannot begin to move in the direction of obeying that command. I think when we look at that sort of irrational rigidity, we need to move to a deeper social, psychological lens. And that's what has fascinated me about this fellow over the years. And here I just want to say a couple of things that's not in the scriptures, it's just a lens, a way of reading the scriptures, about the concept of charisma, the idea of psychological charisma. When we use the word charisma, particularly of leaders, we tend to say that our, our favourite leaders tend to have it as if it is a trait. When psychologically speaking, charisma is actually a transaction. You need a village to make it charismatic. You, you actually, it's a transaction from people who are under stress to a symbol that they hope will relieve their distress. It's a transaction. And what tends to happen inside people under stress is that they tend to petition those good aspects of themselves that they, they appreciate and project them onto the leader, step one. And then step two, the, the leader absorbs those. They, he drinks them in, interjects them. And then... Because there's difficult to resolve what he knows to be flaws, the leader then projects the bad things about himself or the less worthy aspects onto the followers and tends to hold them in contempt. And gradually you'll end up changing your whole psychology and you'll believe yourself to be special, of different quality than those who follow you. And that's called the charisma trap. And that's where this guy is. He looks at the masses and Jesus commands him to have empathy on these masses, but he's already projected all his contempt onto them. They're not worthy of affection or of generosity. He hasn't got that capacity. He's not just special. 
He's heading towards narcissism. And then to rub insult into injury, you rub theology over the top, you laminate that whole dynamic with a bit of theology and you make a theology of your good fortune. Heaven endorses my inferences. Heaven says that I'm special because there are verses there about God blessing, etc. in the Old Testament. And uh, surely my wealth is the work of God. And so it's a sealed container, this whole psychology. It's very difficult to break into. But Jesus just did. If Jesus is good, if Jesus is Lord, and Jesus commands him to do this one thing, and he can't do it, then he's not good. And Jesus has shattered this dynamic with that one pebble command. There's a core truth here for us today. Real life, or God's liberation, begins when we see ourselves through God's eyes, not ours. There are churches that you can go to and there are books you can read. There's a whole industry of semi-Christian literature that will tell you again and again that if you become a Christian, that's because God thinks you're wonderful. You're special. That's not the Jesus of this text. Liberation begins when we see ourselves through God's eyes. We are never more than who we are between, before the all-seeing eyes of the all-knowing God. I like the way the uh, globetrotter from Tarsus puts it in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and 10. And he himself knew this because he was deluded about his own perfections. Before the law, he says, I was blameless. But in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, Godly grief, a work of God this is, produces repentance, a change of mind that is, that leads to salvation with no regrets. But worldly grief, this sort of guy's grief, produces death. That is such a deep principle here. Like so many times I have prayed, Lord, I want to be closer to you, I want to be nearer to you. And guess what happens? I get depressed because he shows me the Jeff he really sees. He says, if we're going to live together, if we're going to walk together, then we're really going to work on this stuff. And that's the God, that's this Jesus. And I'm so glad he does. You never have regrets when Jesus goes to work with his scalpel and he removes that or he transforms that or he challenges those issues which are semi-conscious, which are habitual, maybe even inherited. True liberation begins when we see ourselves through God's eyes, not our own projections or the projections of others. You then see that this fellow drifts off out of the story. That could be the end of the sermon, and some of you are probably hoping, I wish it was. <laughs> but it's, it really could have finished right there. And, and it would have been a complete story. Remember the day when that guy came and Jesus, boy, did he bury him and he went away. Yeah, I remember that day. But that's not the purpose of this story. We've had six verses about an unnamed ruler and then we get nine verses about the disciples. This is what the story is about. This is Mark's emphasis, what he's majoring on. 
And Jesus, again, interesting, the two parts of the story are linked together. The same phrase is used when Jesus says, it says again, he fixed his eyes on the disciples. He's moved his gaze from the man to the men. And here is an object lesson for them that they're going to remember. And Jesus just comes out with an assertion. How difficult it will be for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they're amazed. (laughs) Ask yourself, why are they amazed? And if that wasn't uh, enough, he then amplifies that statement with an illustration. Children, he says, you know, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than to press a camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus is not suggesting that you try. Begin with the nostril. No, that's not how it works. He's saying it's that hard. It's so difficult. Because of this sealed theology, this sealed psychology, that I am special and I need to sustain and defend that artificial self rather than be really known by God. Children, he says, it's that hard. And if they were amazed, the first after the first statement, they're absolutely flabbergasted when he says that. This is not a theology they share. But Jesus is now, you see, he's shifting from dealing with the individual who is somewhat the created product of this village, psychological village. He's now turning to the village. He's turning to those who are complicit. Those who themselves are just as responsible for him as he is. They've projected these potentials onto him that somehow his wealth is a sign of heaven's blessing, that he is something special. They're just as responsible. And that's why he's dealing with this here. He's now, it takes a village to make a narcissist. Just look at American politics. Um, it's a really where, where we live in this world. They they have projected unearned potentials onto this leader that he doesn't warrant. They've looked to idolise this influencer. That's not uh, worthy of their adoration. And that's why at that point in verse 26, they come out with the phrase, they're right on the money. They say, who can be saved? You see, in their whole economy, their salvation economy, this guy was so close. And if he misses out, what about us plebs that God has not blessed, according to their assumption of what blessing involves? Where do we stand? Who can be saved? Their assumptions have come to the surface that they are plebs, that they have no hope. And here is the second core truth of this passage. Salvation, Jesus says, is a work of God. He says, um, uh, Jesus, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation is the work of God. It is not the merits of individuals or some people being particularly gifted at worthiness. Salvation is a miracle. It's not a reward for the saintly. There are parts of the Christian church, a large part of the Christian church, that believes that grace is that little top-up that just gets you over the line when you're almost there. But that is not biblical grace. Biblical grace is you haven't got a hope to begin the race. 
Salvation is a miracle. It's a total work of God. It's not a reward for the saintly. Our God does all the essential work to bring us to himself. And right then, Peter is listening carefully. And uh, he sees where this is drifting. And he says, hold on a minute. Salvation is a reward for the ungodly? Um, Hold on. We have left everything to follow you. You know, where's the payday coming on that? We've sacrificed a lot. Are you telling us now, you know, two years down the track, after all we've left, good businesses, nice homes, family, the whole lot, you're telling us that's for nothing because salvation is all of God. How can that be if it's a reward for the saintly? It's all or nothing for Peter. There's no paid off in the... Where, 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 where is their dream? What is their hope? Their dream and their hope is that there would be, through this Jesus, mind you, a reversal of fortune, that they might now get their day in the sun, having been in the underclass of the masses, now it's going to flip and they're going to get their day on the top of the pile. That's why they're following Jesus. The chance that they too might someday be somebodies, have a name, have honour. And if you think that's not true, look at the next story. When as they move towards Jerusalem, James and John snuggle up to Jesus and ask if they could have the best seats in the kingdom of heaven on the right and the left. They're they're totally addicted to this reversal process where they can gain honour in the present. You know, it's uh, no wonder they... They flee when it gets tough later on. Because they are divided selves. They profess that they're following Christ. But you've got to ask why they signed up for that deal. Why they bought that sorry ticket towards Calvary. The core truth, folks, is that conversion is not a compensation for weak egos. It's not that... We in the world have our limitations and we're schmucks and nobodies, but if you step into the church, you can have a second chance to become a somebody. That's not the gospel. That's testosterone. It's not the Holy Spirit. Conversion is never a compensation for a flagging ego. It's not an alternative stage. That's not what the church is. The church is as we'll find out, a different sort of community altogether. And the last core truth is this. In verse 31, in what's the last few verses, Jesus says, um, actually, there are going to be rewards. You know, those who leave fathers and mothers, sisters, brothers, houses, lands, etc., Uh, they're going to be compensations in this life. And I don't think Jesus is saying literally, I think he's saying it's going to be in kind. You will have a sense of reward. You can't get a hundred fathers, let's face it. But one thing you won't do is if you rip up the contract with culture and you step into following Christ wherever that takes you, you, if you buy that ticket, you certainly will never regret it. 
That's what he's saying. There are different kinds of compensations, but here is a, a truth that we don't preach much at all. On the one hand, while salvation is not a reward for sainthood, there are rewards for faithful saints. In this world, not just the world to come, but that's not salvation. That's purely the generosity of God. And it's amazing how many people discover that God himself is not stingy. You know, it'll be an interesting exercise this year uh, to see uh, just how rewarded you are as you become radically generous. It's a very interesting experiment, but there's one thing that you are sure to fail at in the Christian life, and that is simply that you cannot be more generous than God. Try it. (laughs) It's a wonderful experiment of faith. He always comes back with unexpected compensation. Blessings in kind, not equivalents. And you notice the fine print? Blessings, yes, with persecutions, mind you. And that is the mark of the true Christian saint. We seem to be shielded from that a lot. It's, It's coming. If you read the Christian news, there are people who, for the sake of their fidelity to Scripture, are being persecuted, even in the professional ranks these days. We could spend time talking about that. Time does not permit. But you see, these people have signed up for the popularity ladder. They want to grow in influence. But Jesus says, no, reality will be it'll come with persecutions. You're never going to be enamoured by the general culture but now the real surprise is that those who are influencers, those who are the celebs in our culture those magnetic personalities will end up the last many who are first will be last and the last will be first the work of Christ in the history of man is one big great reversal and we get to see that in the end time you know recently as I was preparing this service I uh, Recall that uh, I was within a few days of a funeral of a dear friend. She died a few years back. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, quite a remarkable person. i just finish with a brief sketch of her life. Uh, Jessie Williamson was a remarkable missionary. Came to the Lord at Essendon High School through a, f- a, f- a famous Bible teacher, uh, Stella Leslie, uh, mother of one of our former Baptist Union presidents. And Stella led ICF groups all across the western suburbs of Melbourne back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and Jess was converted at one of those in Essendon High School. Uh, an addictive Essendon barracker. Became a nurse and uh, understood from the word go that wherever Jesus commands, that's where I go. She worked uh, with a mission up on a plateau in West Irian, now known as West Papua, with people who were, well, pretty violent, pretty savage. Uh, Their culture was pretty dark. She spent her life trying to do two things, trying to change the minds of the culture, particularly with respect to their fear of the spirits. Because of their fears of the spirits of the ancestors, 
that uh, when their children had croup, I should have triggered warned this, but they would take their children in the middle of the night and roll them into the fire into the middle, in the middle of their huts to stop them crying. It did stop them crying, but then they'd bring their charred babies to her to patch up the next day. This is how she spent the first 20 years of her life. You see, need and darkness and gospel, practical help and gospel message are all necessary to transform any culture. There is nothing necessarily sacred about Indigenous culture, folks. We all need salvation. In this particularly dark culture, she lived and managed to train up a batch of orderlies, about ten of them, in basic what we would call St John's Ambulance First Aid, Sanitation and Midwifery. In the end of the 90s, it it, it reached our ears and it reached hers that she'd been uh, awarded the OAM for services to Indigenous medicine. And uh, she said, oh, do I have to come to to anything? She's too busy. Plus, it took her nearly four days in wet season to walk off the plateau to the nearest road to catch any transport to the nearest plane to get out of here, three plane flights later to get to Canberra to receive a medal. And she decided to do it, catch up with a few of her supporters while on the way, preached at my church, hopped back on the plane, and uh, was back. And But I remember people asking her at that moment, saying to her, Jess... She's, she's getting long on the tooth now and she had her own medical issues to deal with and they said just certainly surely it's time now to to retire hang up the spurs you know and uh, you know leave it to someone else she said if I go who will look after my blackened babies answer me that then I'll come home You see, we can spend our lives hankering for something that this dead culture will give us, a search for significance, baubles from Canberra, but our share price is in heaven. That's where we're accruing. Disproportionate reward for little acts of loving faithfulness. Jess simply followed Christ into the heart of darkness where need was greatest and that was her reward that was great enough the apostle Paul puts it so well and he reminds us of this wonderful text (laughs) he says we consider your calling brothers and sisters Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no man may boast in the presence of God. There's a purpose in his surgical procedure. 
and the purpose is that we might worship him, not ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for where we sit in history this morning, in this place. We thank you that we sit here with yourself, that our lives are gifts and that you, the giver, have great plans to liberate us from the cultural baggage that we carry and the assumptions that weigh us down. Lord, we just pray today and simply say you have our permission to get to work in our lives, that we might be free and have the liberty to truly follow you, not just in word, not just nominally, but actually with all our heart and all our strength and all our mind. In Jesus' name we pray.